0: Welcome to the history of witchcraft. Episode 23 Ten Thousand Hells. For when we hear one rack the name of God, abjure the scriptures and his saviour Christ, we fly in hope to get his glorious soul. Nor will we come unless he use such means whereby he is in danger to be damned. Therefore, the shortest cut for conjuring is stoutly to abjure all godliness and pray devoutly to the prince of hell. Mephistopheles in Christopher Marlowe's Doctor Faustus. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft podcast. Last time, which was more than a month ago for those listening as this is released, we took a look at some of the superstitions held by your average Joe in Elizabethan England, as well as how those beliefs influenced and motivated accusations of witchcraft. This week, we are going to remain in early modern England, straddling the Elizabethan and the Jacobean eras, where we will cover the depictions of witchcraft and magic in some notable performances of drama. This was, after all, the time of Marlowe, Middleton, and of course Shakespeare, and their representations of the supernatural both reflect the expectations of their audiences as well as influence our modern perceptions of what a witch is. It has been said, with some justification, that the Renaissance passed England by. And to some extent that's true. England was never a stronghold of the arts of painting, sculpture, or architecture. Of course, painters, sculptors, and architects did live and create in England. When the French king, Francis I, imported a range of Florentine artists in an attempt to spark a French renaissance, Henry VIII was particularly keen on emulating, and of course surpassing, his continental rival. His patronage brought Hans Holbein to English shores, where he did a fine job painting a number of portraits, and yet, much like in France, no great painting revolution took off from his example. Sculpting was much more successful. In Elizabeth's reign, the creation of miniatures was apparently quite popular. Architecture also enjoyed royal support, with Italians encouraged to emigrate in the reigns of Henry and his son Edward. They built a number of wonderful buildings, such as Hampton Court Palace, and yet upon Elizabeth's accession, a style known as North Mannerism became more popular, which drew inspiration from Italy, but evolved independently. Yet it was none of these continental imports that dominated Tudor and Jacobean culture. It was the written and spoken which epitomises this era of England. Poets, authors, and, of course, playwrights, took centre stage, pun fully intended, in the growth of English culture. The written word captured the beauty that had previously been the domain of paint and clay and marble. Authors and playwrights mirrored and espoused political, cultural and religious feeling, to the extent that even now, over four centuries later, the English-speaking world continues to be dominated by words, phrases, and ideas formulated by these early modern writers. Such is the extent of the growth of the medium of written word that even with countless texts lost to time, the sheer number of publications is daunting, and prohibits any attempt to list them all. Instead, Today, we'll be looking at very specific plays, arguably the most famous creations of each of their authors. We will start with possibly my favourite play, or at least the play that I remember enjoying the most from my English Lit classes, The Tragical History of the Life and Death of Dr. Faustus, usually just called Dr. Faustus. Written by Christopher Marlowe, an Elizabethan dramatist who had probably moonlighted as a spy for the government and was murdered, possibly, for this in 1593. The play had been first officially published in the Jacobean era, at least a decade after Marlowe's untimely death. Two versions of the play were printed, one in 1604 and another in 1616, and historians have debated which one is the true version imagined by Marlowe. Among their other differences, the 1604 text is shorter than the 1616 edition, certain characters and names are spelled differently between editions, and some phrases are quite substantially altered. In any case, Faustus was certainly performed during Marlowe's lifetime, but the question remains, which version was it? For some reason, I'd always assumed that the term tragical was a portmanteau of tragic and comical. There is a lot of humour in Faustus, in addition to the tragic, and yet I've only just found out that I assumed incorrectly. Of course, it simply means the same as tragic, it seems obvious now, but hey, maybe I can blame that on my English teachers. Because if you haven't had the pleasure of reading or seeing a performance of Dr. Faustus, it does not end well for the good doctor. Dr. Faustus centres on the titular character, a man of, quote, Base stock, end quote, who had nevertheless achieved a doctorate from the University of Wittenberg. He is, or at least considers himself to be, a prodigy and genius who has mastered and dismissed every subject he's encountered. Logic? Well, it's just a tool for arguing, and he's good at arguing, so he doesn't need it. Medicine can't hold back death forever, and so it's useless. Law is simply beneath him, while divinity is just a waste of time, since it is human to sin, and how can one properly understand the divine if one has sinned? The mundane objects roundly dismissed, Faustus calls for two magicians to be brought to him, Valdez and Cornelius. While waiting for them, Faustus faces two angels, a good and a bad angel, who try to convince him to abandon this interest in magic, or to run with it, respectively. Since it would be a very short play if he didn't, Faustus agrees with the bad angel and meets with the magicians. The magicians teach Faustus how to summon a devil, and it's how you would imagine. There's a magic circle, candles, incantations, and Faustus renounces his baptism. Unknown to Faustus, but obviously visible to the audience, his preparations are being watched by Lucifer and the devils. Lo and behold, a demon appears, introducing himself as Mephistopheles. Now, Faustus is a little rude here, and demands he changes his form into a Franciscan monk to be less hideous. When the demon does so, Faustus is elated. He's bound a demon to his will, only for Mephistopheles to reign on his parade. No, Faustus, you haven't bound me. I serve Lucifer. I'm only here because you've been very silly and renounced your baptism and the scripture, and I'm here for your soul. Yet unrepentant, quite literally in this case, Faustus sends Mephistopheles to make a deal with the devil. Faustus will have 24 years on earth, with Mephistopheles as his servant in all things, and the ability to wield magic. After 24 years, he will give up his life and soul to hell. Faustus is told to sign a contract in his own blood, cutting his arm to get to his blood. Now at first. It divinely heals with the Latin for man-flee inscribed in his flesh. In the face of this obvious divine intervention to save his soul, Faustus brushes it aside. In his mind, through his previous actions of summoning Mephistopheles in the first place, he is damned already. The wound is burned open, and Faustus makes his deal. So Faustus has a demon at his beck and call, and the ability to conjure wondrous things. He does nothing with them. Yes, he makes some practical jokes, notably tormenting the Pope with his powers, but largely he just entertains the nobility. At one point, Faustus tells Mephistopheles to show him Helen of Troy, the, quote, face that launched a thousand ships, and a woman appears. Whether this is the soul of Helen, or a demon in disguise, is just one of the debates surrounding the play. One would evoke horror. Faustus having not only summoned the dead and committed necromancy, but he's also kissing her. If it was a demon in disguise, it gains a level of comedy. Foolish Faustus, cocky Faustus has been tricked, kissing and dancing with a demon. Any knowledge he gets from Mephistopheles is also useless, and throughout the play, Faustus refuses to repent and to save his soul. Even Mephistopheles warns Faustus of the mistake he's making. Why, this is hell, nor am I out of it. Thinkest thou that I, who saw the face of God, and tasted the eternal joys of heaven, am not tormented with ten thousand hells in being deprived of everlasting bliss? The title of today's episode is From This Cry, Mephistopheles' answer to Faustus's questions about what hell is. In other words, Mephistopheles is telling Faustus, is hell, is losing access to heaven. Utterly convinced that there is nothing he can do, Faustus ignores appeals from angels for him to just pray for forgiveness. At the end of the allotted time, the clock strikes eleven, Mephistopheles appears to claim Faustus' life and soul. Faustus begs that he will burn his books, but there is no mercy. Lucifer, Mephistopheles, and a horde of demons drag the good doctor off stage to the sound of his screams. In the later edition, three scholars report finding Faustus' remains ripped apart by demons. Now, there are elements to Marlowe's play that may seem similar to our modern ideas of witchcraft and satanic magic. The contract was, then as it is now, the final method of transferring ownership or promising a service. Marlowe's audience would have been well aware of contracts. That Lucifer demands Faustus to sign one is both relatable and a sign of quite how serious this agreement is. Add that to the fact that this was to be signed in his blood, and you have quite a symbol of Faustus' bondage. Of course the satanic circle and ritual resembles any depiction of devil making in modern fiction. A pentacle or pentagram red for thematic reasons, of course, dotted with candles and incantations of a particular sort. In Faustus, the doctor makes a speech in Latin which abjures his baptism and his faith. Mephistopheles does appear, but reveals that the ritual was completely unnecessary, as all he needed to do was renounce his faith and demons would flock to claim his soul. Yet, Mephistopheles is elsewhere shown to be an unreliable source of information, so it's possible that this is another lie. Of course, Marlowe's Faustus is based on an older story, that of Faust, a German legend of a depressed and bored scholar who, after failing to take his own life, calls upon the devil for magic and knowledge in exchange for his soul after a set amount of time. Now, this legend has multiple versions, and in some, Faust seduces a young girl with the aid of Mephistopheles, who bears him a bastard son. The girl, realising the horror of what had just happened, Not only that she'd borne a child out of wedlock, but that she'd been seduced by a demon, drowns her child, and is executed for murder, only to be saved by God and allowed into heaven due to her innate innocence. Faust alternates between being saved as well, either through God or through his own repentance, or being dragged to hell. So, with the tragical history of Dr. Faustus out of the way, we may now turn to The Witch. Which, which? Well, The Witch. The Witch was written by Thomas Middleton, sometime between 1606 and 1620, and it tells the tale of Rosamund, the Duchess of Ravenna, who murders her husband Alboin. Why would you want to do this? Well, it may have had something to do with him making her drink from a cup, made of her father's skull. Lovely. In this play, we see the return of an old friend of the history of witchcraft, Hecate. Yes, the Greek goddess of Crossroads is back, although as we'll see shortly, she also appears in Macbeth, but that's for another time. Rosamund and Alboin are based on historical figures. Alboin was the king of the Lombards, a barbarian people who would go on to rule the Italian peninsula, and who gave their name to the region of Lombardy in northern Italy. Rosamund was the daughter of the king of the Gepids, Cunimund, a rival barbarian kingdom based around the Roman city of Sirmium. Defeated by a joint Lombard-Avar force, the Gepid kingdom was destroyed, Cunamund was decapitated, and his daughter became the wife of his killer. The tale of her being forced to drink from her father's skull comes from this marriage, and clearly inspired Milton in his work. The story of the witch, as you might expect from a play with a title like that, is full of witchcraft. Witches are called upon to provide love charms in the first scene, while the second is devoted to Hecate and her works. She enters carrying snakes and a baby, a, quote, unbaptized brat, end quote, and the witches plan to boil the baby and use its fat to make an ointment. This ointment would let them fly, transform themselves into demons, and have sex with young men. While they're planning what sounds like a wild night, the character of Sebastian appears, and requests that they make the new husband, Antonio, of the woman he loves, Isabella, impotent, so that they cannot consummate their marriage. The charm he receives is made from lizard and snakeskin, and Sebastian leaves happy. Then another character, Almachildes, arrives, completely off his face on wine, whereupon he gives Hecate the gift of a toad. This goes down very well, and Hecate invites the drunk Almachildes to a dinner. Then, to end the scene, a fiddle-playing cat called Malkin enters, shepherding a number of spirits who carry the food. How's that for service? In the next act, Antonio, that's the new husband, by the way, and I will also try and keep all these names somewhat memorable, is stricken with impotence from the charm, and he is moping on stage. His sister, Francisca, appears and confides in the audience that she has been having a secret affair with a man called Abazanis, and has fallen pregnant. Worried that she would be murdered for the shame by her family, she plays along with Abazani's plan to get her out of the city during her birth. The next scene has Alma Kildes recalling his drunken adventures with the witches, and he finds the love charm in his pocket. When the target of his affections enters the stage, he slips it into her clothing during an unwelcome hug. After storming off at Alma Kildes lecherous behaviour, she returns after the charm takes effect, declaring him, quote, the sweetest gentleman in court, end quote. Oh, how lovely. It goes a bit pear-shaped when the charm falls out of her dress and is picked up by the Duchess. Now despising Alma Kildes, the girl leaves for good, while the Duchess declares her love for him. By blindfolding Alma Kildes and tricking him into thinking she is his crush, they have sex. She then removes the blindfold and reveals her identity, giving Alma Kildes a choice. Help her murder her husband, and she will marry him. Refuse, and she will have him accused of rape and executed. No surprise, Alma Kildes chooses the former. The next scene involves far too many affairs, deceptions, and, most importantly, names for me to cover coherently, So off we go into the next, where we find Hecate and her fellow witches about to go on a lovely nighttime flight, where they sing the song, Come Away, Come Away. This is often held up by historians as evidence of collaboration between Middleton and Shakespeare. This same song is found in a version of Macbeth, and Middleton and Shakespeare had worked together in the King's Men. In the next act, the Duke has been murdered, and the Duchess rules. She plans to murder Alma Kildes as well, in order to tie up a loose end in the death of her husband. The rest of the act involves half the cast tricking the other half of the cast into having sex with them, so while very funny, is of course no interest to us. The first scene of the final act is the climax of all these plots and affairs, with revelations and threats of murder and poisoned wine, which isn't actually poisoned. The following scene is in Hecate's cave, where the Duchess visits to receive a poison she plans to use on Almachildes. In lieu of poison, Hecate offers the Duchess something else—an enchanted portrait of Almachildes, which will kill him within a month. But this is not quick enough for the Duchess, so instead, Hecate recites a Latin charm and promises that Almachildes is a dead man walking. Satisfied, the Duchess leaves, and Hecate requests from another witch, quote, Three ounces of the red-haired girl I killed last midnight," which is then stirred into her cauldron while the witches sing and dance. The finale begins with the news that Antonio, in his rush to find his supposedly adulterous wife, had fallen for a trapdoor and died. Sebastian removes his disguise to reveal that rumours of his death had been greatly exaggerated, and a servant admits to having falsified reports of his passing. Then the Duchess returns, and shock, horror, the Duke's body has been found. She is accused of murder and adultery, admitting the murder, but denying adultery because that's what your priority should be. Whereupon, Alma appears. Suspecting that she plans to have him silenced correctly, Alma admits to all that he had sex with the Duchess while blindfolded. More shock and horror. But then, it's revealed that he hadn't had sex with the Duchess. He had sex with a prostitute, pretending to be the Duchess. Even more shock. Slightly less horror. So the Duchess is cleared of adultery, but has just admitted to murdering her husband. But then, the Duke arises from the dead. Horror. Shock. He hadn't been murdered after all. Al couldn't bring himself to kill him. Now, apparently in a very forgiving mood, he thanks Al for you know, not murdering him, as well as pardoning his wife for trying to have him murdered, and promised not to make her drink out of her father's skull ever again. The whole scene laughs, probably. The play ends on a positive note. Everyone is happy and healthy, except for Antonio, who is apparently still dead in a pit somewhere. The witches in The Witch seem to take a lot of inspiration from Reginald Scott's discovery of witchcraft, but where Scott describes them with scepticism... Middleton takes as inspiration. Elements of witch belief like flight, devil worship, the gathering of witches at a sabbat, and the sexual behaviour of the demons and spirits under their control are taken whole cloth from the discovery, as is the relationship between witchcraft and Roman Catholicism, with Hecate muttering her charms in Latin. Dr. Faustus makes similar connections with Faustus's incantation abjuring his faith being spoken in Latin while he orders Mephistopheles to quote, go and return an old Franciscan friar that holy shape becomes a devil best. End quote. More popular beliefs, as we saw in the previous episode, such as wax effigies, familiars in the form of animals, and the harming of farm animals, are all represented in the witch, and would be familiar to many of his audience. The lurid details of the witches are designed to be horrible. Murdering and cooking a baby in order to make ointment from his fat is unpleasant, to say the least, as is the skinning of animals for charms and the human ingredients used for the witches' spells. The sexuality of the witches is also likely to inspire revulsion from the audience. That these lecherous, ugly, and morally bankrupt women are willing and able to enslave young men for their pleasure was enough to turn the stomach of any Jacobean audience, or at least of the men. Yet, despite their abilities and their actions, the witches in the Witch* are. Oddly benign, and I say that well aware I've just referred to them killing a baby and a woman. Unlike in a play such as Macbeth, which we'll see next week, their actions are not actively, or even subtly, corrupting others. They offer to kill and to enslave, yes, but on the request of the other characters. The well-heeled quarters of the play, the rich and the social elite, who come to Hecate as clients to request her services. In this way, the witch simply offers the characters the ability to act out their pre-existing wants and desires. The desire to kill their husband, or to seduce their love, or to harm a rival. They don't put ideas into their head like they do with Macbeth. So next week, we will cover the works of the Bard, William Shakespeare. I'd originally planned to combine Shakespeare with today's episode, but after my little holiday over Christmas, I've been very busy catching up with other work, and since I didn't want to be missing for any longer, you get a slightly shorter episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. Financial support is always welcome, and can be given at patreon.com slash historyofwitchcraft. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening.